Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated. I'm Darren Leslie. I've been overwhelmed by the support I've received since producing new episodes of the podcast. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of my listeners. I love you all. I'd also like to thank everyone that has joined and contributed to our Facebook group. I'm really enjoying engaging with you all. If you haven't already done so, please do join us. Just search for Becoming Educated on Facebook and you'll find us there. Before we go further, here is a message about this episode's sponsor. This episode of Becoming Educated has been supported by Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps schools improve student grades and helps reduce teacher workloads. Teachers at over 150 schools, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and Art Schools, use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning, consolidation of classroom material and as a flip learning tool. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote Becoming Educated for 10% off. That's uplearn.co.uk. U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. This week, I am joined by Adam Boxer. Adam is the head of the Science at Tortridge Academy. He's the co-founder of Carousel Learning and the author of the brilliant book, Teaching Secondary Science. In the book, Adam distills years of hard-won experience and outlines his approach to teaching, and it goes well beyond just science. The huge 100-plus pages on explanations are worth the purchase of the book alone, and his outline on how to build a culture of retrieval really is fantastic. In this episode, we discuss the following and so much more. Why our teaching should be content-led and not resource-led? What is meant by the term ratio? Why a good explanation is the beating heart of an effective learning sequence. The features of an effective explanation. And finally, how Adam is building a culture of retrieval to ensure students conduct lots of retrieval practice in their own time. This conversation has so many takeaways, so I would advise that you listen twice and make sure that you have a pen and paper handy. Adam's thinking really is brilliant. So, let's dive right into the episode 91 of Becoming Educated. Adam, thank you so much for joining me on Becoming Educated this evening. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. As I said, off air, just a couple of days away from the summer holidays. So really looking forward to that. Um, so I'm absolutely delighted to have you on Becoming Educated tonight. I've got your book just behind me here, which will hopefully the viewers will be able to see, Teaching Secondary Science, that I, I'd absolutely loved. I've mentioned that a few times on social media. That's ap- applicable for teachers of all subjects, not just science teachers. Although I was fascinated by the by the uh, um, ideas and that you shared around um, uh, science teaching, especially the, the explanations, which was incredibly fascinating because I have been coaching a, a science teacher this year. So if I had that at the start of the year, I might have been able to blow his mind away with a bit, a bit, a bit of science. Um, so, there's, always, there's always next year. <laughs> exactly. I'll try, try and get into it next year. 
So um, just to ease us in, could you share a little bit about you and your career in education to date, please? Uh, yeah, um, I, uh, I'm Adam. Hi, uh, and I, I kind of, uh, I started teaching in when I trained in 2013, September 2013. I started, did a normal standard PGC, um, worked in a couple of schools um, that are quite local to me, part of the community, and then um, I joined the Totteridge Academy in 2019 i think and my mind was blown uh, it's just like um yeah it's just a different level in terms of the quality of the school uh, and i was very fortunate that my you know i joined as head of science and um very lucky that my boss is one of the uh, most astute uh, and perceptive observers um and thinkers around teaching and learning um and i'm lucky that he's he's also like a very blunt guy and i've taken on quite a bit of that he's he's greek and he takes the uh uh the, the kind of cultural more of saying what you think to someone's face rather than beating around the bush he takes it quite seriously um so that kind of leadership worked really well for me um and I say a lot that I learned more in I've learned more about teaching and about leadership and just about schools in general in six weeks at the Totteridge Academy than I had done in the six years before. Um, and again, like you know, am I allowed to swear on this one? I always have yeah, to ask. Oh, great! Yeah, like I don't want to be a dick about it or anything, but like you know, I've been doing a decent job for the six years until then. Um, and I was a massive nerd and I was like reading everything, you know, it's not like I was just sitting up with my feet in front of the fire doing my nine to five. And, you know, that was the end of the story. You know, I was on Twitter, I was reading dozens of blogs and research papers and I was reading the tests every week, cover to cover. And, um, yeah, so just my, but my progress just went wild as soon as I joined the Tottage Academy, thanks to that leadership and that guidance. Um, and the, you know, the book, kind of very much came out of that um we got mullered in lockdown it was like so bleak um and i'm perfectly upfront about how much like i struggled personally and professionally as well during lockdown um it was like not a good time for me um but you know every cloud i guess has a silver lining and one of the things that we were doing in lockdown was thinking really hard about modeling and explanations and even though it was something I've been thinking about a bit until then, it was only really during that period that I started trying to systematize um, the kind of thoughts that I had floating around um, up here somewhere. Uh, and also I was really blessed um, to have trainees. Uh, and I'd done like, I'd done like PGC training up until that point, but there hadn't been, I guess, the same level of urgency and responsibility that like we're taking on, you know, we have, we're teach first school, we've got loads of teach first trainees and stuff like that. And like the, the urgency that is involved with getting them to be good is, do you, do you have teach first in Scotland? Yeah, no, we don't. Yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, look, sometimes it gets a bad rep, you know, I, I hold no particular flag for it. It is what it is, but these, these guys join you, they're 21 years old, they're 22 years old. They're just chucked in to, you know, to, my school is a challenging school. We have an inner city intake. It's not an easy, it's not walk in the park. And they're just chucked in. And like the, there's a burning need to get them up to standard fast. Uh, and that burning need is both because of them. You know, if you don't support them, they're, they're gone. They're just going to leave. 
yeah, why would they hang like why would they hang around? Yeah, if kids are swearing at them and telling them to fuck off and being rude to them and they're not enjoying their teaching and they're not getting that sense of satisfaction that they were promised, uh they're just gonna leave. Like why would they hang around? Why would any normal person do that? So uh, you know and if you want to hold on to people, you have to look after them. That's number one. And secondly, like it's the right thing to do in and of itself. I don't you know, I feel really strongly that as a line manager, as, as a boss, as a head of department that like, I need to look after my people just because that's the right thing to do. But then also it's like, you've got to do it for the kids, right? You've got these, these guys teaching 16 to 20 lessons a week or whatever. And there's a lot of kids who are going to be getting a raw deal if they can't teach. So you need to be able to communicate quickly. Uh, you need to be able to communicate effectively and efficiently, and you need to find things that make a big difference and can be implemented easily. And um, essentially what I realized I was doing as time was going on is I was building a system um, and a vocabulary around a, co a single coherent approach to teaching. Um, and I was having to kind of communicate that and impart that in a way that wasn't systematic. So I was I was building a system. One of the phrases my, my, my boss, Chris Fairburn, the principal of the school uses, is building a plane while flying it. <laughs> right which is like just a lovely image and and it really does represent what we do in schools the whole time because like you're you're doing stuff while you're going right and it's like so like cobbled together and ad hoc and you know you don't have the same you're not forethinking anything you're not anticipating you're reacting the whole time so i guess what i wanted to do is take all of those thoughts and those things that i was delivering ad hoc that were springing out of the stuff that i'd read the stuff that i'd seen the things we were doing in lockdown the stuff i was giving to the trainees and they were giving back to me you know i learned tons from them um and i just kind of wanted to to put that into i guess like one solid chunk um that that wasn't built while I was flying it essentially. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what you, that's what you got. So I wonderful way to put it, um, building a plane while flying it. And it is a considerable chunk and you've downloaded like your entire thoughts and systems teaching into the book. And I think that's, it resonates with a lot of the things that I say and I do in my job as a teaching and learning lead. And, and I was reading that thinking, Oh, I wish I, I wish I could say it the way that you say it and distill it in the way that you've said it. And you've done that for me, which is, fantastic so thank you for that um, my, pleasure, my pleasure thank you for that Jay. I love that refreshing honesty you mentioned from your line manager because I've I listened to you on Craig Barton's tips for teachers and you spoke about kind of a, a really interesting way about the, the your team or Google Classroom about how you say no that's not for there this is for here and so on and I love that refreshing honesty because I would highly I highly highly value that refreshing honesty and that's my line manager to give me give me that kind of honesty and, and thankfully they do, which is, which is excellent. So I, I love that kind of line of thinking as well. Yeah. It's, it, we, we have such a, we have such a unique culture um, at our school and people come to visit us and see what it's like. And, you know, when I'm really lucky, you know, the, the department that I lead now, we're all completely on the same page. You know, we know that, you know, I had a really tough conversation with a colleague recently. Yeah. And, um, and uh, and like like they got quite upset, yeah. And um, like obviously you know I'm I'm not a monster. We stopped the conversation. We said look, we'll pick it up another time, yeah. And um, they came to me the next day, and they were like, you know, thank you for what you said. You know, I'm sorry I got upset. Blah blah blah. And, and I, was, I was like, look, you did. Yeah, you know, they, I said there's no need to apologise. And um, 
and and not just that, but like, like for me, it, nobody wants to make anybody upset, but in a way, it's a good thing because it means you've been hurt, right? A lot of the time, you you give feedback to someone, and like they're just not along. They go, oh, yep, 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 mm, yep, 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 and then nothing changes. And like when we do feedback, like I want it's not that I want to see a rise out of someone, but like I want to see that that they've really internalized it. And, and, and I'm exactly the same, you know, I, you know, I, I freely confess that like, there are things that, that I've found really difficult to take in feedback, but have been absolutely right. And the things that I needed to hear. And we have a phrase, which is called challenge and change, which is if I don't challenge you, I don't change you. And it's very much that, like, you know, often I'll, often when I'm, I, you know, I deliver, I'm very lucky. I get to, I've, I get to deliver CPD a lot. And one of the things I like to do is, is I like to get people to commit to, to something. So I'll give them an explanation for, you know, let's say I'm, let's say I'm doing an ex, um, CPD about how to deliver a good explanation and I'll give them an explanation for topic X and I'll deliver it. And I'll ask them to write down, you know, if they thought it was any good, blah, blah, blah. And I said to them afterwards, you know, and I said, it was, a, it was a really bad explanation. It was really, you know, that was, a, that was objectively a bad explanation. And I, I needed you to write it down that you thought it was good. And that's what normally happens. I deliver it and I get 95% of the audience saying, yeah, it was, it was pretty good or normal, average, or be- you know, average, you know, no, no less than average. They say, the reason why I asked you to do that is because I need you to realize that you're wrong. Yeah, because I could do CPD and I could just say, you know, uh, this is what I think, this is what I think, here's an interesting idea, here's an interesting idea. And you come away from it thinking, yeah, that's an interesting idea. But you don't come away from thinking it, thinking I need to do something differently. You know, I do, um, when I do mini whiteboards, I always, I, whenever I do CPD, the audience always has mini whiteboards. It's important to me because I need that kind of feedback. And often at the beginning of a session, and my session isn't anything to do with mini whiteboards. My session might be about, I don't know, uh, how to go over and mock exam or whatever. Um, and at the beginning, I'll, I'll ask them if they use mini whiteboards and I'll have them write down on their board if they use mini whiteboards. And normally there's a forest of no's. And then at the end of the session, I finished the session. I said, I said, just by the way, as an aside, yeah, just, just write down if you think that, that using mini whiteboards now was really good. And they'll all write down yes. And I say, um, I want you to write down if you think that using mini whiteboards in your classroom would, would be a good thing. And they all write yes. And I say, this is crucial because you started and you told me, you said, I don't use these. You're now saying to me that they're good and they're important it's not enough for you to come away from this session and just think, yeah, that was interesting. I need you to come away thinking I need to do something differently. And people don't, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm like this as well. People don't, that doesn't happen to people unless they feel challenged. So like, you've got to be a bit punchy. Um, otherwise, you know, all this skirting around, oh, well, maybe if you thought about this, you thought about that, you know, you, you've really got to, kind of be a bit more forceful than that in order to get people to change obviously there's a buy-in thing yeah? and if you've got a bad relationship with someone like it's just a waste of waste of everybody's time um and you know you have to moderate or accelerate depending on the person in front of you like the way that i talk to someone who's just joined the team is completely different to you know one of my colleagues who who who, who i trained you know he started the school at the same time as i did he never taught a lesson in his life he's 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 never known any different he's three years on yeah like, I don't need to bother with the feedback sandwich with him because he walks in, he's like, hit me with the good stuff. He's like, he's like, yeah, tell me what I need to do. And, and he, he like, he like wants to hear it. He's like, he's like, he's like, what have you got for me? 
he's like desperate. And then I'm like, well, you know, start with, we never take for granted. Your modeling was really nice. You did blank canvassing. You moved from coffee. He's like, I don't care. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> you know, can we get to the point? Right. So, you know, different people are very different and, you know, obviously you have to, you have to adjust to that. And everyone's got that, everyone's got that like point where too much challenge is, you know, too much challenge and you go too far and you just make people resent it too little and you don't cause that change. So everyone's going to have that point. It's just going to be somewhere. Um, I've, I've waffled. I don't know. I'm just, just going on about it. Now. No, I, I love that. I love that explanation about bringing about the challenge to change people. And I love what you mentioned there about the colleague in your team, because you mentioned earlier that you've got such a good team that all buy into a, a model or an approach to teaching, which makes that feedback a little bit easier three years in. And you mentioned there that you give somebody different who's just joined your team because maybe they don't fully understand yeah, it's, that. Yeah, because it, it's different to teach him. It's really different, um, and 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 the approach to feedback as well. You know, I spent five years getting feedback from people, which is, oh, I really like this, that, or the other. You know, have you thought about da da da? Maybe you could try blah blah blah. Something something waffle waffle AFL differentiation yada yada. It was never like, you know, you asked twenty five questions during. Um, that lesson I think 20 of them could have been appropriate to be done as cold call and uh, you missed a cold call on five or six of them it's not really good enough you need to make sure you're using cold call for every question that um, that, that is appropriate to a cold call and nobody ever said that to me <laughs> right but like that's much better than someone waffling on about how oh you know did you think of like just, I don't have time for it anymore it's much more targeted and you can hang on, hang on that to see improvement because next time all your questions yeah, are yeah, cold and then you can target something else with the feedback to just keep keep making you better. Because you, you made a great point earlier on about, um, you know, we're doing it for the, well, you want to make your team kind of good, but it's important that they're good because the students need that. And I think that's the, the most important thing. The better we get, the better it is for the students. So I'd like to dig into some of the ideas in, in your book, Adam, if I may. And I'd like to start, you start by talking about but this idea about how our teaching should be content-led and not resource-led. Can you speak to that idea and why you think that? Yeah, so the first time, so in my in the second school that I worked in, I was in the third year of my teaching and I was using the fifth Key Stage 3 curriculum that I, um, I was using, the, it was the fifth one that I'd used right which is wild and and in itself is a very very big big problem which we don't have time for now um but broadly i was working on this key stage three curriculum trying to deliver this thing and it was it was pence and and part of the reason why it was pence is um and every key stage three curriculum that i'd used was pence because you'd open up the folder and it would say you know unit 8p2 electricity and you'd open up the folder and you'd see a whole bunch. You'd see 10 more folders that said 8P2 Lesson 1, 8P2 Lesson 2, and then a bunch of random files at the bottom that someone had put there. There might be like a knowledge organizer or a glossary. Knowledge organizer didn't match the glossary. Uh, there'd be a revision activity, an assessment that we actually didn't use but was in the folder anyway, uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And then you'd go into an individual folder, you know, 8P2, Lesson 3 or whatever. You'd see six different PowerPoints, each one with a different initial at the end of it, three of which are clearly different iterations of the same PowerPoint and three of which are completely different. One is taken from tests, one is taken from a school down the road, one is taken from somewhere else. And you'd see six of these PowerPoints and you'd see, you know, five or five to eight different worksheets 
And like the thing that took me time when planning was figuring out what the fuck am I supposed to teach? Right. And, and what, what I was doing is, is I was actually, I found myself to my shame. Yeah. It's partly to my shame and it's partly, you know, expected, but I was basically going through these PowerPoints and these lesson resources and looking for ones that I liked that I thought I could deliver. And I wasn't paying heed to the stuff that was in them. I was kind of paying heed to the type of activity. I say, right, well, that, that's clearly not going to work. You know, that that's a, an entire lesson based on a project. I'm not going to be able to do that. This lesson requires me to have printed seven different worksheets and it's, I'm teaching in five minutes. So I don't have time to do that. And eventually I just find one that I could deliver, stand and deliver. And, um, I, I just had this like nagging feeling that this was completely mental because I wasn't thinking about the stuff that I actually wanted the students to learn. And then I, you know, I, I took up a position. I was, you know, head of key stage three science, whatever. And I was going lesson to lesson. I was seeing teachers teaching the same unit. And the only thing that they were teaching in common was the title of the unit. <laughs> yeah. Like you'd go from lesson to lesson. They'd be teaching radically different content. And I'm like, well, hang on. Why, why are you teaching this? And like, Oh, it's just a slide that I found in the drive. And I, and I go into the drive and I'm like, bloody hell. Yeah. That slide really is in the drive. And then I'll go somewhere else. And I'm like, well, why are you teaching this? And I'm like, well, I didn't like that slide. So I use this slide instead. And I'm like, well, that's great. Yeah. But you're actually, it actually means you're teaching different things and you'd get to an assessment and like carnage, right? Because, because <laughs> like no kid had been taught the same thing. And you ended up then doing an assessment that was, you know, people just, recycled old sat papers which was for a curriculum that died years before uh, an assessment regime that didn't exist anymore uh, and didn't match any of the content so you had different students learning different things and being assessed on the third thing so it was just all completely bananas um, and I strongly felt that it was and, and part of it stemmed from uh, systemic problems with the national curriculum the, the National Curriculum for Science, which you don't have because you've got Curriculum for Excellence, right? Which I hear is even worse. But, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the National Curriculum for Science is really, it, it's not particularly va- uh, like specific. It's a bit vague. Um, and it's got a lot of statements in it. But like within those statements, there are different angles you could take, different things you could emphasize, different ways of teaching those things. And, and within them, specific items that you might teach or might not teach. Um, and sometimes those are like, you know, this can be like a big thing. Like if I, if I teach heat transfers, do I teach conduction, convection, radiation, right? Um, do I teach all three or do I just like, you know, just love them all together as heat transfers? Or do I talk about specifically the conduction is best with solids and convection with fluids and radiation works with any substance? Do I then teach them that radiation can travel through any medium, but conduction and convection only require, uh, requires particles? Do I teach them the, in, the fact that conduction relies on vibrating particles, which is about oscillating on a spot or moving about one particular position, whereas convection relies on particles literally changing location or a translation kind of thing. Uh, again, like, that what what level do you want to go to? Well, some things are good at conducting and other things aren't. So should we chuck that in? Metals are good at conducting. Why? Because they've got delocalized electrons that are free to transfer thermal energy throughout the material. Am I going to include that as well? That is not in the national curriculum. It doesn't go to that level of specificity. So, uh, and, and, and because of that, people teach whatever the hell they want, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm constantly like noticing a line in the national curriculum that I didn't know existed. Right. And, and like, it's just, it's the wild west. Yeah. And there's, and there's stuff that I thought was in there, but isn't in there. You know, there's no mention of specialized cells. Well, I think there might, there's a mention of specialized cells, but it doesn't tell you which specialized cells. 
Right, GCC it tells you which ones, but in GCH3 it doesn't tell you, it just says specialized cells. Uh, so it's, it's a wild west and it meant that everybody just did whatever. And I thought it was really important to, to not do that and to first think about what it is that you're going to teach and then fashion your lessons around that. Uh, and that, that obviously should be done at department level. It's a curriculum. Um, and that's what I meant by being content led so that the content comes first rather than you found this glam resource. You know, I see people put up a picture of some like lesson they're doing on Twitter and the crowd goes wild. And I'm like, and people are like, oh, can you DM me a copy of this, whatever? And I'm like, I'm like, are you mental? Like, how can this possibly fit? Like, like the resources that we use, you can't just drop into your curriculum. Like, I make all of my resources available for free. I want people to use them. I want people to take them, but I need them to adapt them, yeah? You can't just, like, say, oh, well, Adam, you know, I like Adam, and he's got these booklets, and they look like great resources. Let's just use them. I'm like, no! Yeah, you've got to, like, start with your content. What is it that you want to teach? right build the booklet around that and that's what we do um and you know so rather than being resource-led of saying like i like this resource i'm going to let it lead me uh, and another example of being content-led rather than resource-led is, is time yeah, so often um i see people with their schemes of work and they have one lesson they have one lesson per lesson right so they've got one slide per lesson or whatever and i'm like how could you possibly know like it, that's that's sorcery isn't it <laughs> yeah that's that's, that's like some amazing you know uh, and this by the way is not just like a quirk of teachers this is a quirk of researchers as well you know the number of times i'm reading uh, a, a like a proper research paper that is about evaluating a particular curriculum and they like note in the footnotes somewhere that the you know the 15 schools that trialed it all had different amounts of time in their lessons and you're like what <laughs> That's mental, right? This just doesn't make any sense. Uh, what you're doing is you're you're saying that like, oh, I've got 50 minutes, right? That's you're like you, you, it like almost lets it's letting time be the master of the content, and it's saying right, well, 50 minutes is done, so we're finished. So who's in charge? Time is in charge. Kronos, the Greek god of was he a god? Was he a titan? I don't know. The Greek something or other of time. He's in charge. And I'm like, but why? <laughs> like the the content, the stuff, right? The god of knowledge, so first, I don't know, should be in charge of what you do, right? So like, we don't have lesson by lesson. It's not a thing. We just have a unit, right? And it takes as long as it takes. And you stop the lesson whenever you stop the lesson. You just pick up from where you left off, um, because that means that you're saying the content is in charge rather than the clock. So yeah, so it was it was like a slow trip. It was like a light bulb moment when I realised that I was, I was I was being a bad teacher because I wasn't letting the content lead me. I was letting the various resources at least occupying the students' time rather than actually teaching them the, the stuff you want to teach. It. And you, and I've seen it far too often. I read a stats a while ago that over ninety five percent of teachers have spent their evenings on twinkle or test resources trying to grab something for the following day and you're right in what you said about, about social media you they, somebody puts something up and then you see a hundred posts and they DM me a copy and they're just you just think are you actually going to use that meaningfully or are you just going to throw that in for something for the students to do because you haven't thought about it and I think thinking deeply about the curriculum and the knowledge you want to teach really helps you create the create any resources or booklets whatever you need for your department I love that note you made there about, you know, if I'll stop my lesson here and if I need to pick it up again, I'll pick it up again rather than this kind of, I've seen it in so many 
shared drives before lesson one, 15 minutes, lesson two, 15 minutes, lesson three, 15 minutes. And we all teach to this, but quickly you realize that it, it will be lesson two, 15 minutes adapted by Darren, lesson two, <laughs> lesson three, 15 minutes adapted by Adam and Adam's resource and so on. And it just, it's like you said, it's just an absolute minefield rather than thinking about it. So can I, what I'd like to do now is, is can I, I love you clarified that. I'd like to go through a little kind of sequence that I've picked from the book. Um, can I start and can I almost think like a little flow of like a, a 20 minutes of a lesson if I mean, if, if that could be it. So I'd like to ask you, like you discuss like different types of knowledge, domain knowledge and prerequisite knowledge in the book. And let's assume then that we've decided upon the knowledge we want to teach, the content we want to teach, the stuff we want to teach the students. How should, how should we start at what you call a learning sequence? So any learning sequence, look, it's not a term that I, that I define too much, but, but broadly it's um, the learning sequence is the thing you want to teach, right? And then how you're going to teach that thing. Um, so you take your bit of content and, and basically anytime you teach anything, it's going to have similar components. It's going to have a prerequisite knowledge check. It's going to have an explanation. It's going to have some kind of intermediate phase where you're checking for understanding and you're checking that student and you're giving students the chance to start practicing in like a safe environment. Then they're doing independent practice. Then you're reviewing it. Yeah. Pretty much anything you teach is going to follow those kind of steps and that or cycle almost. And that cycle is just calling is just what I call a learning sequence. Yeah, And I, I, I use it instead of the word lesson. Because one learning sequence could take 20 minutes, it could take an hour, it could take a week, right? So that, that's why I prefer that term. But it's basically a bundle of teaching. Right, thank you. And then how, how would you start that? Do you, 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 would you start like a learning sequence with a quiz? You mentioned prerequisite knowledge. Can you speak to that idea a little bit, please? Yeah, so um, remind me what you teach? Uh, physical education. Okay, so what are you teaching tomorrow? Uh, tomorrow... Uh, Give me an example, yeah. Doing tomorrow. That's a good question. Um, Football. Okay, so are the kids like just going to be playing football or are you teaching them a particular skill? Then we're going to look a little bit about passing and then we're going to move into oh, some okay. small city games trying to tailor the the games towards making as many passes as they can. Lovely. And are these short passes, long passes, um, through balls? A mixture of both. So the practice will involve a little bit of short passes or like a a traditional one is like make two short passes and your third one needs to be a little bit longer. Beautiful. Okay, so what, what kind of things does a student need to be able to do before they can pass the ball? Control the ball. Okay, like, can you break that down? Give me a, give me a specific thing. So they need, they they need, need to be able to stop the ball in front of them. So they would right. use the side of their foot, okay. stop the ball so that it's in front of them so they can then move forward and pass the ball. Lovely. Lovely. So before you start teaching them how to pass the ball, you check whether they can do that. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's a prerequisite knowledge check. And then that would... You've identified the thing. If a, if a student can't control the ball, you can't teach them how to pass. Yeah, It's like a mm -hmm. threshold. They, they, you can't do B without first being able to do A. There's a bunch of stuff within football that, that, they, that they can know or not know that won't make a difference. So, for example, can they head the ball? Yeah, doesn't matter. Right. But where they can control the ball, that's crucial to today's learning. Testing whether or not they can control the ball is called your prerequisite knowledge check. And that can be a knowledge. It can be a skill, however you call it, whatever. It's you checking whether they can access today's lesson. So sure. if they can, then great, you can move on. If they can't, then you have to do 
more of that before you. So, for example, in physiology, you can have, you would check that through a little look. And, and by the way, I'm very much going out on my limb, having, going out on a limb, having not kicked a ball in about <laughs> four years. So, just to get into that, we would check that by a little warm-up activity where you were observing them pass. You would see it. So we would change mm-hmm. and adapt our lesson and go back in our learning sequence, if you may, based on what we see. So how, how would you do that in a, in a science classroom? Uh, you have to be a bit quick-witted, to tell you the truth. Um, but, but, like, I mean, look, you've, you've, let's say you're teaching D. And A, B, and C. You've, so you've got learning sequence, starts with A, then B, then C, then D. And you're about to teach D, so you, you gauge A, B, and C first. Right? Now, like, if the kids don't get A or don't get B or don't get C, like, okay, these are things you've taught, right? And you've taught them in the preceding weeks. So, you know, like, you should be ready to just mine your brain for, okay, what did I do then? Okay, I'm just going to kind of do similar now and push their thinking a little bit. If it's stuff from you know, bygone eras, then, then you should be prepared to know, right? Like if I'm about, you know, if I'm, uh, uh, what's a good example from chemistry, um, where we take a break from stuff and then go back to it. Okay. Yeah. Let's say uh, I'm about to start organic chemistry, which is in the, you know, normally taught in the year 11 course. And it relies quite heavily on an understanding of covalent bonding and simple molecular, um, structure and properties which is taught about halfway through year 10 you're damn right when i turn up for my first lesson to teach organic chemistry i am ready and prepared to have to spend a bit more time than i than like part of my planning is planning stuff to do with simple molecular now it might be that i don't need it and if i've been doing my job over time properly i shouldn't need it but it's still there and it's still ready and it's not wasted time because it's all part of me building my knowledge and skill as a teacher, and it will be more useful to me next year, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but it means I'm prepared, and I, I think I think the the PowerPoint era, and I wrote about this recently. The PowerPoint era has robbed us of of that kind of um, that kind of craft knowledge of not just the craft knowledge, but the disposition, the readiness for things to go horribly wrong, and to say part of my job is adapting on the fly. Because if you've got a PowerPoint, you've got a PowerPoint. That's your lesson. Yeah, there's no there's no deviation. You're just next, 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 next. And sure, people will say to me, well, that's just bad PowerPoint usage. Okay, but that is PowerPoint usage. It's what I see. Yeah, I'm very blessed. I get to see a lot of lessons. I go to schools. People, I get to do learning walks. I see a lot of lessons. People send me videos. They send me a video of them teaching to have a look at and give feedback. I love doing it, yeah? Whenever I see PowerPoint, I never see people being as adaptive as when they're not using PowerPoint. Because like the whole like the whole psychology there is this is the lesson. And when I say to people, okay, well, what else is in the lesson? They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, the PowerPoint can't be it, but it is it, right? People will say, oh, well, I've got, an, you know, I've got a worksheet as well. I'm like, yes, but what if it all goes wrong? What if they don't understand? What if they're not ready? What do you do? And there's no answer there. So it's a, it's a disposition that leads to a skill. The disposition is the knowledge that I will have to, I will have to change. Yeah, it's, it's inevitable that something is going to go wrong at some point and I'm going to have to be able to respond to that. And then the skill is preparing, trying to anticipate those issues and slowly building up your bank of, you know, what's often called pedagogical content knowledge, the ability to ask questions um, and, and, and figure out on the fly what you need to do next. Have you ever listened to Teachers Talk Radio? If you're interested in education and want to hear from a wide range of teachers from around the world, then I highly recommend giving it a listen. 
You can listen live via the TTR website at ttradio.org or listen back on all good podcast platforms. I particularly like the Listen Back page on the website where you can type any name and it will locate the show you want featuring the guest or host. Amazing stuff. I love that. No, because PowerPoint is such a crutch for someone, but it, it's like what you mentioned there about robbing us of that of that craft knowledge. Um, I love that. I love that line. I might steal that um, quite soon. Um, so before we dive into the kind of rest of it, I want you to share what you mean when you talk about this idea of ratio. What do you mean by that term? Uh, ratio. Okay. So I, in my opinion, uh, the two most important aspects of teaching that beat everything, yeah, that beat explanation, beat independent practice, beat everything, are ratio and retrieval practice. You know, retrieval practice because it stops the kids forgetting the stuff, which if they do forget it, like we wasted our time. And ratio because ratio is about attention. Ratio is about whether students are participating and thinking in your lesson. And essentially what it does is it just describes a number of people at any point who are thinking in your lesson. So to give two extreme examples, if I ask a question of one student, right, I ask a student, um, give me two properties of a simple molecular substance. Uh, and even if I do that properly, so I do a proper cold call, I put the name at the end, I say, give me two properties of simple molecular substance, down. <clears throat> it could be, you know, I've got 30 kids in the class. It could be that every student is trying to think about the answer. It's more likely that fewer students, because I've, I've called down, like, like, it's down, I picked down, yeah? So, like, why would anybody else be trying to think of the answer? That's what we call low ratio, because Darren is thinking, not many other students aren't. Let's say I do want mini whiteboards instead. I say I want everyone to write down two properties of simple molecular substances on their mini whiteboards. I can see all 30 of them are writing stuff. Yeah? So I know that 30 students are participating. And someone will say to me, yeah, but you can't. Like, nobody can check all of those answers. Like, I don't care. That's not the point. (laughs) They're all thinking. They're all doing something. Yeah. So that means my ratio is high. It means lots of students are participating. Now, the same applies. That's just about participation. Like, are they paying attention? Are they thinking? If I'm in the middle of teaching and, you know, we have a field next to the school and there's a muntjac deer that every so often wanders through the field. Yeah. Okay, so if my blinds are open and Jack Deer is wandering through, my ratio falls. Yeah, and I need to bring the students back. Guys, guys, come on. Yeah, I know it's, it's lovely. Isn't it adorable? Yeah, okay. Eyes back over here. But if I just plowed on, my ratio would fall and fall and fall and fall and fall. <clears throat> the most common time when I see ratio falling is when, like, you're doing that, like, one-to-one questioning or whatever. Um, or uh, a classic is a classic, yeah? So in... In the majority of cases, unless someone is specifically cognizant of it and mindful of it, let's say a student says something and you can't hear them. What I see normally is a teacher will take a step towards them and ask them to say it again. That's a signal to everybody else not to listen. And nobody else cares, right? Because like if you, you know, like if you couldn't hear it, they can't hear it. And when you go closer, you're telling the student to speak at the same volume and like nobody else hears it. So ratio drops off a cliff. Um, these are things that I see the, the whole time. They're the things that I do in my own practice. You, you have to be like actively mindful of them because it's not human nature. There's also think ratio, which is how much are they thinking? So you can have everyone participating, but doing absolute nonsense. Yeah, I promise you. Yeah, you give your class a word search. Everybody will be working. 
nobody will be thinking. Or they'll be thinking, but they'll be thinking about the wrong thing. Yeah, they're thinking about identifying letters. What a skill that I need my students to have. Figure out which letters go in which orders. You know, you can do a word search in a language you don't even understand. Yeah, so because <clears throat> you're not thinking about the stuff, right? So that, that means you've got a low think ratio. So even if like lots of kids are working and doing stuff, the thinking is, is poor quality. Um, and this is very common when it comes to like projects, homeworks, when kids are copying and pasting, they can, sp- or fiddling with the, with the word art in the PowerPoint, right? They're, they're, they're working hard, but they're not thinking about anything useful. Um, so, you know, if the work is too easy, if the work is too hard, if the work is not relevant, these are all things I see again a lot. And again, things I've done in my own practice, think ratio falls. Um, you know, when you ask kids to do groovy things like, oh, write a tweet as if you're a molecule that just reacted. Yeah. Your kid, I I tell you, you know, I'll make you laugh really now. I used to do this lesson called salt, eh, called, um, salt dating which is like speed dating, but with acids and alkalis. And um, these acid and alkalis, they date each other in a bid to find their salt mate. And it was absolute bollocks. And the kids loved it. Yeah. And they all went off and they researched different acids and alkalis. That, that's who they would be. And like, they'd then get up and do this speed dating or whatever. But they'd like prepare their pitch about themselves, which literally just involved them reading off from PowerPoint and then making a corny joke. Right. And by reading off from PowerPoint, I mean, they'd copied stuff from like Wikipedia and then just making a corny joke. And I'm like, they were working, yeah? They were engaged. They were doing stuff. They were learning, <laughs> like, nothing at all. So my participation ratio was high, but think ratio was low. Now, of course, the danger zone is where participation ratio is low and think ratio is low as well, where, you know, kids are messing around, nobody's listening, and the work isn't good as well. Um, and that's, you know, we've all been there. We've all been there, but it's uh, it's not a good place to be. So would you say then that getting the think ratio to be high is probably the hardest part of that equation? Uh, no, they're both hard. Yeah, I don't know about which one is relatively hard. With some classes, you know, just getting them to pay attention is, is really difficult. Um, you know, we have 100-minute lessons, yeah? Like, yeah, they're, they're long, right? But I teach a lot of bottom sets. By the time we're getting to minute 80 they're finding things quite tough and it's fair enough. They're in human and these aren't just humans, they're children. Um, and I have to use everything I've got to get participation ratio high. That's really bloody difficult. <laughs> if they test in every, every aspect of your craft. Yeah. Whereas I also teach a top set year nine, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of them in the class. There's 40 of them in the group, but like they're on it the whole time. And the challenge for me is making sure, but even within 40, there's like quite a big range. You know, there are some kids who are going to go on to do A-levels and go to university and are smashing nines and stuff. And other kids who are, you know, they're they're, they're strong scientists and they're aiming for sixes and sevens, but like they're not in the same league as these guys. And and trying to find a way to get everyone thinking is is really hard. So I'm not going to say that one is harder or, or easier. They both need to be thought about. Right. Thank you so much. Um, I move on to this idea of explanations. You write, I think, over a hundred pages on explanations in the book, and you write that um, a good explanation is the beating heart of an effective learning sequence. And you also note that explanations tend to be underexplored as an area of teacher training and development. 
Can I ask you, Adam, what do you think are the key features of an excellent and engaging explanation? You asked asked me to summarise 100 pages. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, The... The first, the, the, uh, um, yeah, the, it's difficult to pin down the keyest of key features, but I would point to five characteristics. Characteristic number one is that the, and this is the one that everybody knows, yeah, which is that you, you regulate the flow of information. Yeah. It, Transmit too much information in one go, and it just it's just too much. Cognitive load theory. By my book, it's got cognitive load theory in it. Yay. That kind of stuff. Um, and it's one of those where, like, the, uh, the greybeards on Twitter say, everyone's been doing cognitive load theory forever. We've always known this. And yet, and yet, here we were telling people to do discovery-based learning or project-based learning or limit teacher talk or whatever, when all of that like runs flat counter to that basic principle of too much information at once and students can't retain it. Now that obviously you can go too far. Yeah. And like, if you break it down too much, it becomes fragmented, uh, boring, and it becomes uh, severed from an, any kind of overall sense of this is what we're doing. So you don't want to do that either. There's a sweet spot. And of course you can moderate the sweet spot a bit. You can sometimes add a bit more than you would usually and compensate later with a good support. You know, if you give, give kids a really good like flow chart, a really good piece of summary information or whatever, then that'll mitigate um, the fact that you've given them too much. You know, if you, if you work, if you, you know, there's, there are times where like when I teach moles, which is one of the hardest concepts in GCSE chemistry, <clears throat> I say to students explicitly that like some of the stuff we're going to do over the next couple of lessons won't make any sense to you. you you'll be like, you'll be like, n- not, not in the sense that you won't be able to do them. But you'll be like, why are we, what, what on earth, why are we doing this? And then in the third lesson, I promise you, it will all make sense. It will, you'll just be like, oh. And that happens, yeah. They go like, oh, right. But what I've done there is, is I've done less than I would normally because I'm trying to compensate for the fact that it's really flipping hard, right? So I, I, I mitigate against the dangers. Yeah, the dangers of going too high is overload. The dangers of going too low is is boredom and disjointed and fragmented. You can mitigate both within reason. That's aspect number one. Aspect number two is um, that you've directed attention. So you're very careful about what information you're putting in front of students because you've realized that anything in front of a student is a site for distraction. So I've, you know, I first realized this, I went to a big glamorous conference in, in town, um, hundreds of people there. And one of the guys who was presenting from the big stage was like, he was thinking he was going through his PowerPoint or whatever. And and every slide was a biology teacher and every slide had a picture of an animal on it. And um, just like it's completely unrelated to his talk, which I don't know, it's probably about metacognition. That's what they're all about these days. And he's going through it, and uh, uh, like I'm not the person next to me who is an old hand at these conferences. And I was like, oh, what's what's uh, what's the deal with the animals? And they go, oh, that's just I can't remember the guy's name. That's just Dave. This is what he does, isn't it funny? I'm like, I mean, 
I mean, to start with, no, right? It's not funny by any sense of the word. It's it's a, it's a leopard. <laughs> <laughs> leopard. Leopards aren't funny. Yeah, it's like it's not it's not Darabrian. It's a leopard. <laughs> And, uh, to start with and secondly like all this time that I've been pondering the blooming animals I've not been listening to what he's talking about and the idea is that all of those like engaging whizzy snazzy hooks anything anything that's there in front of people and it can be engaging it can be snazzy or it can just be something else if you put a fully formed diagram up on the board you've got no idea which bit of it students are looking at no idea and um, I did a video where I tested this. I <laughs> I put up a picture of, um, you know, like on the back of kids' cereal packets, there are those like mazes where you go in, you've got to move your finger around and try and get to the thing. And what I did is, is, is I, while I was talking, I just put a picture of one of those up on the slides and then kept talking. And then I took the picture away and I was like, how many of you were listening to me? And how many of you were like going around the maze thing? And like everyone's going through the maze, right? Because anything in front of you, is like a site for distraction. Now, those two things, by the way, regulating information and controlling attention, saying, look here, look here, look here, don't look here. Look at this bit. See how this builds over time. Don't look at the whole diagram. Look at this part of the diagram is why I advocate blank canvas modeling. So always starting from scratch and going freehand. And in 99 out of 100 cases, an explanation is delivered freehand using a board or a visualizer or a tablet or a graphics tab or whatever is going to be better than one that is not done like that. It kills two birds with one stone. It's a beautiful technique. Um, thing number three is to move your is Basically, you need to give your explanation a sense of narrative, uh, a sense that you know what, like you've decided the order in which you're going to teach things. Uh, the best order in which to teach things is to follow three basic principles. Principle number one is to move from things which are familiar to things which are unfamiliar. So you start with examples that people know about and then you move to things which people don't know about. So, for example, a bit earlier on, um, you asked me what a prerequisite check is. Yeah, I went to your terra firma. I went to things that you know about. I could have said to you, ah, a prerequisite check is, um, so let's say I'm about to start teaching um, the uh, electrolysis. So the first thing that I do is I want to check that students fully understand the process of oxidation reduction in terms of the loss or gain of electrons. They can correctly balance a half equation, uh, identify the stoichiometry and explain the necessity to balance the charges on both sides of an equation. Is that a good way to explain a prerequisite check to you? <laughs> not really it's not, right? <laughs> well, it's not because it starts with something that is completely unfamiliar to you. So you start with something that's familiar and you move to things which are unfamiliar. The second narrative principle um, is starting from things which are concrete and moving to things which are abstract. Um, and I tend to define things which are concrete as things which are like, like physical and tangible. Um, so, for example, you know, let's say you were, you were explaining the concept of total football. Yeah, you wouldn't start with total football. You'd say here, you, you see, you see, look, look at where this guy's playing. Yeah. And look at his, his positioning on the pitch and the way that he passes it. Yeah. Good. Now look at this guy, what he's doing. Okay. Now look the way that he moves to here and does the same thing as the first guy. You see that? That's really concrete. Right. What he's just done is he's done two different positions. 
He could do three, he could do four, he could do five. We call that total football. Total football is an abstract concept. It's an idea. Yeah, it's, it, it's, not, it's, not like a, it's not like a real thing. You can't touch total football in the same way that you can touch or smell or see someone striking a ball. So watching someone kicking a ball or kicking a ball yourself is concrete. There's a feeling to it. There's a, there's a perception. There's a sense, a, a sensory experience. Whereas ideas, yeah, much less so. And, you know, in science, we, you know, we teach ideas. That's what we do. We are teaching ideas. We're teaching abstractions. Um, and it's always best to start from things that are concrete and move to things which are abstract. Um, you know, homeostasis, right? You do that in PE as well. Yeah, the, the way the body controls, you don't call it homeostasis, but the way the body can, um, regulates temperature. Thermal regulation. Thermoregulation, the way the body regulates sugar concentration, all of that stuff. Yeah. If you're teaching thermoregulation, the first thing you do is you just talk about how you feel. Like I've exercised. Well, oh God, I feel hot, don't I? Why is my body making my skin hot? What's going on there? What, what's happening here? But you start with those feelings. You don't say there's this thing called thermoregulation, which is the way the body controls uh, temperature during exercise and activity. Like It's not like, yeah, it's just the wrong way around. And then the final narrative axis is um, about moving from your explanation to your definition. So, for example, if you're teaching thermoregulation, exactly. So traditionally, you'd say today we're learning about thermoregulation, which is uh, the way the body regulates its internal temperature during periods of activity and inactivity. And the crowd goes wild. I mean, like, it's, like dreadful. Yeah, it, like to start with, it's boring, right? Uh, and secondly, even if delivered with panache, today, guys, we're learning about thermoregulation. Yeah, like, there's no way you can jazz that up. Um, <laughs> at best, it's just noise. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say a student understands your definition, right? They're like, oh, okay, I get that. Your lesson is a waste of time because they've got it. Well, they knew it already. That's the best possible outcome. The worst possible outcome is a kid goes, ah, this lesson's not for me. Look, you teach PA, yeah? How many of your kids who do PA, well, as soon as you get to a theory lesson, they're like, eh, it's not for me. I'm not going to be able to get this. Yeah, so why would you scare the shit out of them at the beginning? With, you know, with big words and complex terminology and definitions. Whereas if you said to them, yeah, guys, you know, I'll go for an exercise and I'm like getting really hot while I run. And like my body's like sweating. It's trying to cool me down. It's got all this energy. Like I'm just getting hot and hot and hot and bothered. You know, and there are other things like, like when it's, when it's really cold, my body starts to shiver. And, and like, like that little motion that kind of warms me up a little bit. That guys, it's called thermoregulation. Boom. Yeah, like so much better, right? Because you're, instead of defining something, you're showing what something is. You're saying, this is, this is a thing that we're familiar with and is concrete. This is what we call it. And that's always going to be better. You know, when you're teaching a little kid what a dog is, you don't say to them, a dog is a canine. It has four legs relatively straight fur, upstanding ears, eyes pointing forwards, large canine teeth. Like, you don't do that. You just say, you see this, this is a dog. Yeah, like it's always better. You just show the thing, explain the thing, then define the thing. Uh, it's, it's a much better way of kind of 
um, introducing that concept. So to sum up, we've got five things. Things thing one was should I test you? Go on, if you got all five, go. Regulate the flow of information. That's number one. Smashed it. Number two. Check my, I'm going to cheat and check my notes. Uh, direct attention. Yeah, and both of those can be achieved through one technique, which is my mini whiteboards. <laughs> it's a, it's a good idea because mini whiteboards is normally the answer. No blank canvas modeling. Blank canvas modeling. Yes, yeah. where you. Very good. And then we had three further things which were about making sure your explanation is well sequenced. Number one was... Uh, move from familiar to unfamiliar. Good. Second was... Go from concrete to abstract. Excellent. And third? Move from explanation to definition. Perfect. And those three things are examples of what I call dots or directions of travel. Um, and again, by the way, what I just did there is I went from explanation to definition. I showed you those three things and then I defined them. Um, and a direction of travel is basically a way of sequencing your explanation. And I think I've got eight or nine of them in the book. Um, I think those three are the most important. Brilliant. Thanks so much for sharing that and you explained that so well. And I love the little bit of um, testing you gave me there. So kind of brings me on to what I want to close the interview section with. You mentioned earlier on that, I can't remember how you said it, the two most important things were ratio and retrieval practice. Sure. And you've got a great bit about what you call culture of retrieval. Mm. So can I ask you, how have you built a culture of retrieval to ensure students conduct lots of retrieval practice in their own time? Yeah, this is, this is an even bigger question than explanations. Um, because when you explain something, you're in control, you're the boss. And like, you can plan that. Whereas when it comes to getting kids to do retrieval practice at home, you're not the boss they are the boss and you are competing for their time and it's um it's hitting hope really uh and there's look there's building a culture of retrieval in your class is is not straightforward uh, and it's very multifaceted it takes a long time uh, and there are some things that are obvious you can do like explain why it's important and yet, I mean, an explanation of why it's important, you know, every so often someone puts up slides about the science of learning for kids and the crowd goes wild. And again, you've got all of these DM, people that are oh, DM me this, DM me that, DM me the other. And I'm like, it's a waste of time, right? Like how many of us know that things are important and still don't do them? Yeah. It's like one of the most <laughs> universal aspects of human nature, which is like, okay, like as soon as we're done, I want to be really clear down yeah. As soon as we're done, I'm logging in to Assassin's Creed Valhalla and I'm going to go murder some Norsemen. And I'm going to take down some Mercians and it's going to be joyous. Now, honestly, yeah, is that more important use of my time than reading a book? No. And yet, which one am I going to do? <laughs> I'm going to be going into Assassin's Creed. Yeah. And I'm going to be jumping off buildings and I'm going to have a great time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'm just thinking about Assassin's Creed then. You remember what I said about directing attention? Yeah. <laughs> just gone. Just, just gone. Um, so yeah, like explaining it to kids is all well and good and you should do it. But like thinking that that's even going to take a chip off the mountain is is like laughable. Um, you have to use other planks as well. So you, you have to really convince them of the value in class as well. So what I like to do is is... If a kid gives a really good answer to something in class, what I do is I grab everyone's attention. I guess, guys, guys, guys. David, say what you said again, please. And they need everyone to listen. David says it, says, okay. Uh, 
I'd like to know why I'm so impressed with what David said. And one kid might say, because it was right. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, sure. That's not that exciting. Okay, look, what I'll do is I'm going to write up what David said. And I'll write it up on the board. And I say, why am I so impressed with that? Another kid will say, because it comes straight out of the carousel homework. I'll be like, absolutely. Listen, guys, yeah. David, David, look at David. David's becoming a better scientist because he's doing the homework properly. Yeah, you guys, yeah, there's no one in this room that can't do that as well. But you need to be more like David. That kind of stuff. Um, those are the nice bits of it. Then there's the less nice bits of it, which is like telling kids off for not doing it properly, having a go at them for not doing it properly. Look, I'm a secondary teacher. That's what we do. When I first introduced like the idea of that to primary teachers, they were like, <laughs> like I just don't understand. And, uh, and I'm like, you know, it's like, it's just part of the game. Yeah. Like if a kid doesn't do the work properly, I've got to give them a hard time or they're just what I permit. I promote. They're just, you know, like the relationship is different. And again, like the way that I interact with my year 11s is different to the way that I interact with my year 7s. Like my, my year 11s, I'm not, I'm not physically doing it, but I'm metaphorically like shaking them and being like, why are you being so fucking stupid and not doing the work, right? Whereas my year 7s is a lot more like kindly, coddly. Yeah, look, I can see you haven't done it this week. Yeah, I know that you're a lovely boy. Yeah, I know that you just want to do well. And I, want, I know you want to impress me as well. But you've, you've not quite managed it this time, okay? So I'm going to give you another couple of days and I want it to be done by Thursday or... I'm really sorry, but I am going to have to keep you after school and you'll do it for me then with a laptop. Yeah, so like, obviously you moderate depending on who's in front of you, but you've got a, like, uh, there's a phrase we use in Hebrew, but Ashehu Sham, which is where the person is. It's like what I said to you earlier with challenge. Yeah, you need to get the right, the sweet spot, um, challenge and change. And like with, you know, with the kids, you have to give them a hard time. You have to make them accountable um, if they're not doing the work because otherwise they'll just forget everything. And again, the way you do that is there's a battery of different, Sometimes I, I did this really nasty thing called the phone call. It's just called the phone call. Um, <laughs> is the phone call in the book? I can't remember if it made it into the book. I think I don't know if I've heard it when oh, you phone a, a, a parent and you ask for the child to be there and then you ask yeah. them a question from yeah, the homework yeah, yeah, yeah. and exactly. full, full knowledge that they hadn't done the homework. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And they just like die inside. Um, and it's like, and it's not just knowing that they haven't done it, but it's, it's normally when I know they've cheated it or done it quickly. Um, and then I'm just like, I'm like I, just, I just don't understand that. And like, like, uh, this just doesn't make any sense to me. You, you got it perfectly right in the homework. Why can't you sit, say it to me now in front of me and your mum? And they're just like, <laughs> and like, and there's just like this, like you can feel the kid knowing that he's rumbled and it's like, it doesn't happen again after that for sure. Um, so, you know, you have to, you have to pull your levers, um, whatever you've got, but it's, it's really hard graft, but without, but like, but like fundamentally without it, however good your explanations are, however good your checks are understanding, they're going to forget everything because it's human nature. It's just the way our brains are made. Um, so you, you know, without it, you, you're, you're, you're letting them down. No, you certainly are. And I love that little anecdote there to finish there. So thank you so much for that little You've shared lots of knowledge in, in just over an hour. So thank you so much and so many ideas that I hope I've piqued some interest um, in, in your writing and in your work. So thank you for sharing that. My I'm going to go into my quick fire round, three questions that I ask every guest. Oh, but no. before before we do that, can you please direct listeners to, um, firstly, where they could buy your book. Secondly, if you have any blogs or write other writing they could access and where they could contact you perhaps on social media yeah so you can get my book from amazon or from john cat education 
Um, and, you know, I've got some revision guides and stuff as well. If you go to my blog, which is a chemicalorthodoxy.wordpress.com, you will find links to all of that stuff, as well as blogs about teaching and learning, blogs about behavior, um, and tons of resources. If you happen to teach secondary science, I'm afraid I don't have any P resources. Um, though you probably did like the stuff that I did about the heart, right? Mm-hmm. No, I don't yeah, really like um, that, especially the diagram. Especially, I like the bit in the explanation when you held, you held it up. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I really like that. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Um, yeah, once you've taught the heart like that with just that square, you're like, oh my god, why have I not always done it like this? <laughs> I remember I had like a, I had some of the P kids at school, and like they they like came to me, they're like, sir, I just don't get the heart, and I'm like, it's just not complicated, and I just got a mini whiteboard and I just drew the squares, and they were like, oh, yeah, um, I got sidetracked. Number three was social medias at Adam Boxer one. Um, you can, my DMs are open or you can email me adamboxer1 at gmail.com any time of day. Right. Thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you. And I'd really encourage, even if you don't teach science, go and buy the book. It's, it's just, five copies it's, of the book. Buy five copies of the book because it really is truly fantastic. And it, I'm carrying it everywhere with me just now, which is just brilliant because in Matt Rose, I'm a teaching well, Can I make a recommendation? Yeah, instead of carrying it everywhere, yeah, just count the number of rooms that you ever find yourself in and just buy a copy for every room. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll certainly do that, and hopefully, there we go. Hopefully, it just ingrains in my brain. So, thank you. So, now for my quick fire round, um, oh, are you ready for the for the three questions? I mean, let's go for it. What could possibly go wrong? Love it. So, the first question, Adam, is what are you reading currently? Oh boy, um, I am. I'm reading a book called. I can't remember what it's called. I only start. I I started it on. Um, Saturday night <laughs> so because I'm Jewish we keep Shabbat the Sabbath and it goes out really late in the summer and um I normally do I normally I don't have time to, well I say I don't have time I have time to read during the week I just don't want to but on Friday night and Shabbat we don't like there's no computers there's no screens nothing so it's only reading so um we had guests Friday night so I didn't do any reading then I just went straight to bed afterwards and that was like Saturday afternoon kids are in bed I'm gonna do some reading and I fell asleep at 7.45 and woke up the next morning and I'd read about five pages so I can't even remember what the book is called um, it's because it's a new book it's by a lady called Sana Krasikov I think um, it's short stories so basically I've like got this um, and, uh, like project like I've been trying to read as many late 19th 20th and 21st century Jewish authors as I can because I spent a long time like trying to read loads of different things and now I want to try and read stuff like this a bit more from my heritage um, and I've just so Sana is someone that I've just started reading but the last book I read was by a guy called Meir Shalev and was amazing and it's called The Blue Mountain and it's absolutely fantastic and if you're looking for something comedic um, but also like quite sad um, and quite um and like quite historical as well of a, of a period of time that a lot of people don't know a lot about. Um, I definitely recommend the blue mountain by Mayor Shalev. Great. Thanks also, so much. I'm also reading the Royal Horse Cultural Society's magazine called the garden, which we get <laughs> every month. And I, t- I, and I look and think about all the things I would love to do if I had more time or if I spent less time murdering Mercians in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. It's just the choices we make and how we choose to spend our time. But thank you so much for that insight into um, what you're reading especially the note about kind of reading more around your, your heritage I really really enjoyed hearing about that so thank you so much my second question to you is 
what is your current professional development focus? <laughs> um, it's surviving. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's it's a bit complicated for me because I'm changing job roles in September. So, um, my a lot of my the way we do professional development at school is is a bit different. Like we don't have we don't have performance management. We have like individuals set themselves targets, things that they want to do. Um, and essentially normally that's additional to normal job role, but my job role this year has been so utterly bananas that I haven't, I've deliberately chosen to not go beyond, right? It's perfectly. And I want to be very clear to everybody listening to this and especially to senior leaders. It is perfectly acceptable to just focus on being really good at your day-to-day stuff. Uh, and like I was, you know, I had two trainees, I had two new members of the department. I had five excellent members of the department. I had a technician team. I was leading teaching and learning across the school. Um, I'm working on, you know, I'm four days a week in school. I do one day a week working on carousel learning. Like I had enough stuff that I didn't feel the need to take on anything more. Um, and next year my job role is I'm not being head of department anymore. Yes. Um, and so I'll sort of wait to see what comes in September. But like ordinarily, like this, it's really about the stuff that's important to me. Yeah? And, and the things that I've, I guess, spent the most amount of time on this year is trying to help my trainees um, and getting into their class as much as possible. I think I counted up. I wrote a blog this week about observing lessons. I counted up. I've observed um, over 75 lessons this year um, in school. Yeah, and a good chunk of those are the trainees because, you know, I drop into them as often as I can. But, like, I've seen everyone else in the department, like, four, five, sometimes six or seven times. Um, and, like, that's been a big – again, it's one of those where, like, you say to a head of department, like, do you think it's important to go into lessons? And they're like, oh, yes, absolutely. So how many have you been into? Uh, yeah, not that many. So it's like you've got to set the time aside for it. And I think that's something that I've tried really hard to do this year as well. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's such an important thing you meant about it. it's totally acceptable to just be really, really good at the day-to-day job. So I, I yeah. love that. So thank you so much. My final question to you, Adam, is, is what do you love most about being a teacher? I hate these questions. I'm not, I'm not one of those people. Yeah, it's like... It's like that, what's the best part of the job? I'm like, I don't know. I just like my job. <laughs> is it the is it the shine in their eyes <laughs> some people would say to you i've seen those little light bulbs go off or lighting a candle like a flame or helping kids that really need it or working with my colleagues i mean i don't care that was my favorite i just like the job you know there's bit, there's bits of it that i like more bits of it like, like less i don't like dealing with behavior i don't like making spreadsheets <laughs> but you know it's it's part of the territory i don't don't really have a problem with it i like good explanations i like observing my team and helping everyone get better i like thinking about teaching and learning you know i like science i guess so <laughs> you know i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not i'm not gonna pin it down with people like oh name a, a, a time that's inspired you i'm like i don't i don't Leave me alone. Just, you know, why did you choose? Why did you choose to become a teacher? Like, do not, do, is that what normal people do? They're like going about their business, you know, going down the shops, and then suddenly they're like, you know what? I'm going to choose to be. A teacher. 
I don't know. Is that like, is that how we really, is that how normal functioning humans? I've got, <laughs> I say that I've got a colleague. Yeah. He's a really good friend of mine. I've known him for 15 years and uh, we grew up together. And, um, when like I find I've been leaning on him to come work with me for years and eventually he decided to come and, and he'd literally written the list. Yeah. He'd like got the pros and he got the cons. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, that, I mean, that's not normal, right? That normal people don't do that. Yeah, when, when, like, and it's one of the, like, my bugbears. People are like, oh, why did you choose to do that? I don't fucking know. Yeah, and it's one of the things that p- people say to kids, like, what? So why did you do it then? And the kid's like, I don't, I'm 14 years old. <laughs> I'm like, well, you want me to be able to explore in detail all the minutiae of the actions and decisions and consequences? I didn't fucking think it through. It was just funny, right? Like, it's not a helpful thing to say to someone. Helpful thing to say is, if it happens again, we'll exclude you for a month, right? Like, that's helpful because then if the kid's about to do it again, they'll be like, oh, well, maybe I'll get excluded. You know, there's fear in front of them. So, like, you know, they hit the wall, right? But like saying to them, well, why did you do it? And like, I don't know. It's, just, it's not for me. It's just like, not my, I've just rented a lot. And, like, <laughs> and, and like someone, someone's going to read this and say, Adam is in favor of excluding children for months for doing things that are funny. I'm like, please don't. Yeah. Like, that's just not, that's just joking. Yeah. Chill, chill internet. Chill. Oh, right. Thank you so much. That's got to be the most I've laughed someone answering that question since I started doing this and I'm about 90 odd episodes into this so thank you so so much Um, that brings us to the end that brings us to the end of our conversation I've really enjoyed speaking with you this evening Adam and thank you so so much for giving me so much of your time on a Tuesday evening and appearing on Becoming Educated my absolute pleasure thank you for having me on thank you so much for listening to Becoming Educated before you go can I ask for a few things that will only take a minute I'd love it if you could review the podcast wherever you are listening from to get each episode into more ears. If you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash DN Leslie. And finally, to keep the conversation going, please use the hashtag becomingeducated and tag me on Twitter at DN Leslie. I'll be back soon with more insights and knowledge from the greatest profession on earth. <laughs>